Good morning, Fairhill Church. It's good to be with you all. Uh, we're excited about the, the Lord's Supper. If you haven't grabbed your cup yet, go ahead now uh, before we get started. Yep, now's the time. It's a good time to do it. Uh... <laughs> all right, so... Uh, as you may or may not know, we are uh, looking through Colossians, looking at how Jesus Christ is enough for us. Now, we've seen that he is enough for salvation. We've seen that he is enough for our sanctification, for our growth, for freedom from the law. Uh, but today, we are looking at how he is enough to guide our everyday relationships within uh, the Christian household, how he is enough to, uh, to guide our lives and see us through our relationships as, as fathers and mothers and children, and for the Colossian church, for masters and slaves and what that means and what that looks like. Now, Paul is, is addressing the typical Roman household, and he's saying that in whatever role that that person has, they can put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display. They can proclaim the gospel by living in that role in a certain way. Whether they have power or whether they are the weaker, they, they can live in such a way that, that puts the gospel on display and that that gives incredibly dignity and, and beauty to that role. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at how Paul addresses the, the typical Roman Colossian household and then what are those implications for our households, our lives, uh, for even society as a whole and how power is used and what that looks like. So we're going to walk through each of these, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and bondservants, seeing how the gospel can be played out. All right, so let's turn to Colossians 3.18. Colossians 3.18 through Colossians 4.1. You guys don't have Bibles, so you're not turning anything. But uh, you can look on those screens over there. Uh, let's go ahead and read with me. Wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything that those who are your earthly uh, in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has given us a completely new mission and role in this life. That we long to, to enjoy him and glorify his name and proclaim the gospel. Father, we ask that you might give us clarity and wisdom as we think about these things. Father, we know that these are not... Um, popular, or sometimes even easy passages to, to understand and to take in. So 
we ask that you would, um, by your Spirit, give us an ability to see the, the beauty in even these commandments, that we may long to glorify your name more than we long to exert our influences or, or have power to take what is ours, but instead we ask that we would long to glorify your name. Father, would you do that uh, even now, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So first relationship here, uh, the passage begins with the, the marriage relationship and how that should operate within the gospel. Now, before we go any further, we have to make sure that we understand, all right, what was Paul actually addressing? What was the typical Roman uh, non-Christian household that the Colossians would have understood? All right, so uh, it would have been extremely patriarchal that the husband, father, master would have had complete control. And why? Because he was the most powerful. He's the most powerful physically, financially, socially. And what, what did he do? He was expected to exert his will and his power upon those who were subject to him. And that was the typical household, is that basically the father's will goes because he has the power. And he has the power to make his will known amongst his household, and that's what he would do. So Paul is speaking into that context, that household, and he begins with 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, if we take just that commandment and tear it out of its context, uh, it looks like a very ugly verse. And it seems oppressive, it seems, uh, it seems weighty and heavy. But actually, within the context, this is a surprising, this is a shocking verse even. Because he is, he is addressing the wives, and the reality is that most of the time, in, in the typical Roman household, they wouldn't even be addressed. And completely left out. And the assumption was, no, you will be subjected. You, you will be made submissive because your husband will do that to you. But Paul is reversing it. He's saying, no, actually, wives, you have power and you have a will. And we're asking you as fitting in the Lord to use that power and to use that will to willingly submit to your husband. He's giving that to them. Not expecting it as that it would be taken by the husband. Now that, that, that already starts to shape, okay, how does this marriage dynamic look? All right, the wife is not subject, she's not uh, submitting, uh, submitting, excuse me, uh, out of shame for her weakness. She's not submitting because she is being oppressed. She's not resentful or bitter about it. No, she's doing it because it is fitting in the Lord. It is her desire and her will to do so. Now, what does that mean? It is fitting in the Lord to submit to the husband. Now, what I think that means is that it fits the larger picture of the Christian life and the gospel. It puts the gospel on display. Now, in the book of Colossians, what have we been fighting to say over and over? That we are no longer under the law. 
that anything we do is a response to grace, and because we love Jesus, we willingly take on these commandments, not because we want to save ourselves or because we're scared of our Savior, but because we want to love Him and glorify Him. All right. The wife gets to be a picture of living under grace and joy. A picture of what it looks like for the everyday Christian to live under Jesus Christ. And that's right. Okay, so Jesus. Jesus has all the power. He is preeminent over all. He is the, the firstborn of creation. He's firstborn from the dead. All power has been given to him. And yet, does he use that power to, to subject us to his will? No. No, what does he do? He, he loves us and invites us to honor him and glorify him. For our good out of joy. That we would actually delight in the opportunity to subject to ourselves, to be submitting to the one who died for us. That that's the reality of the Christian life. And wives, you're given that opportunity to put that on display. What does it look like to, out of joy and under grace, submit to your husband as a picture of the gospel? The question is not first, like, why do I have to submit? The question is, like, wait, what does it do? How does it glorify Jesus? And it's actually this beautiful picture of the gospel. That the joyfully submitting wife is a picture of the joyfully submitting Christian as a whole. It puts the gospel on display. Now, what exactly does that look like? What does it look like to be, uh, to be in submission to your husband? All right, first, what it does not mean. All right, it does not mean silence. It doesn't mean uh, embracing the 1950s model of marriage. It doesn't mean that you can never question. It also doesn't mean that you're not independent in a sense that you are pursuing Jesus and you are glorifying his name. You are using your gifts. And you're not doing so fearfully or cowering before your husband. Instead, I'd say that, that Ephesians uh, sums it up really well. As the final commandment to wives, it says... Uh, respect your husbands. Respect your husbands. That submission is to, to act in a, this sphere of respect so that you respect the decisions of your husband. You respect the leadership of your husband. That you respect his initiative and the desires of his heart and the, the convictions for the family. And you actually take great joy in those things. And if there are questions about, like, I, you know what, I don't know if this is the best course of action, uh, you don't then bitterly submit. No, out of respect and out of true joyful submission, what do you do? You, you're supposed to talk about it. You're supposed to interact over these things so that you can joyfully submit. There should be this interaction of, like, I don't understand. Please help me along. Maybe you need more information. Can I give you feedback on how it is to submit to these things? Uh, that's to submit in respect and to come with a stance of, of wanting to honor him in his leadership. 
Now, uh, what are what are wives ultimately supposed to be submitting to? Verse nineteen, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So, if wives are supposed to be this picture of the Christian who joyfully submits, then husbands, what are you supposed to be? You are supposed to be the Christ figure who in love is sacrificially dying for your wife every day. All right. Yes? All right. Sorry, sorry, husbands. That's tough. All right. As much as submission is tough, this one's tough too. All right. And that's where the, the agenda and the, the leading of the husband is supposed to be to, to die for his wife and to love her and give himself to her. That he would serve her and put himself uh, under her as, a, as an act of power. And that's where we see that the whole reversal of Christian power and what it's used for. In that Roman system, it said, yeah, the, the father has the most power, so what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to subject his selfish will upon the people. Whoever he, can get, whoever he can assert his power over. And yet, what do we see in Jesus? We see that whoever wants to be first among you must first become the servant of all. That whatever power we're given in the Christian life, we're actually given more responsibility to love and to sacrifice and to serve. And so there's not, it kind of balances out this desire for power because you're saying, yeah, I want power, I want power so I can serve and sacrifice and love more. All right, there's not this grab for power. Power takes on this, this whole new meaning. That's why when Jesus comes, he's given ultimate power because he used it to, to die and to sacrifice. He proved his ability to to use power as it ought to be used. So what does that create? That creates this relationship where wives are submitting to their husbands, and yet husbands are desperately trying to serve and love and sacrifice themselves for their wives. And that's where submission is not this kind of like net that is thrown over you and and weighs you down. Instead, it's this picture of like, this warm embrace that you get to submit to the love of your husband and his embodiment of the cross. Wives representing the Christian life, husbands representing the Christ. That's the beauty of this relationship. Now, um, I think the first question that comes up and the, the natural question and the, the sad question that comes up is, okay, but what is this? What about abuse? What about abuse? How, how do you protect and how do you tell uh, wise, well, no, just, just submit, just submit. Doesn't that create this system for abuse? All right, first, first, look at that Roman system, the Roman system, where submission is not commanded, submission is not the goal. How would you characterize that marriage? It's pretty abusive, actually, because what is the point? The point is to use your power and uh, exert your will. Submission wasn't the problem. The problem was 
power and the use of that power. And that submission wasn't given, it was demanded. All right, but what if the wife submits to glorify Jesus and the husband uses all power to glorify Jesus? All right, then we have this actually this beautiful picture. And that power isn't used to abuse, power is used to, to love and to serve. Now, I know I'm being idealistic. I'm being idealistic, and I'm talking in, in these beautiful, lofty terms. The reality is, there are people in the church who are abused. And are told, you know, you just need to submit. You know, I'd say, yes, you need to submit, but you need to submit to different authorities. And that's where the husband is not the final authority. There are authorities like the civil authorities. And the husband should not be allowed to, to break the law and mistreat his wife. And there are religious authorities. There are pastors and elders. And we are there to make sure that a husband is not harsh with his wife. And I, I speak for the session, like, we believe in abuse. We believe that that is evil and that it is wrong. We believe that wives should be protected from that and taken out of that. And this is not a game. This is not a slap on your hand if you do this kind of thing. That the church leadership, as much as we embody these different things, we embody the, the justice and the wrath of God against sin, and we are prepared to be that that role and that position if you need that in your life. Okay? Now, let's, let's, take, it, let's take it down a notch, the super intense to, all right, what does this look like just on an everyday level? Because this is the Colossian Roman system that they're talking about. How would these same principles apply to you and I right here and now for our marriages? All right, first, uh, men, we are called to love. Husbands, we are called to love. All right, our household should look like we are, we are the servants, we are the ones sacrificing, we are the, the first to do those things. All right, often in the church, there's this like nostalgia for 1950s. The wife is kind of the in-house maid. All right, that's not the, that's not the church system, that's not the Christian system. Uh, that was a product of the 1950s. It's been a holdout for a long time. All right? Not okay. Or right, if anything, if anyone would get the, the strange picture, they should walk into our houses and say, it looks like there's an in-home butler. All right? Because the husband is taking on that role. He is sacrificing. He is loving. All right. If none of us are convicted yet, then uh, you can leave now. All right, next. Uh, all right, Respect. Respect. All right, there's a trend in our culture that it's funny and it's fun, um, that husbands are kind of like the idiots of the, of the family. And that they're kind of like fat and lazy and dumb and irresponsible and, and incompetent and they, can't, they couldn't make a meal, they would die if they were left on their own. All right. <laughs> All right, that's a horrible picture of, of the, the role of the husband. And what, is that, what does that put forth? That puts forth, like, in the, in the analogy uh, that 
Jesus Christ is totally incompetent. And he just doesn't care and just doesn't do a very good job. All right. Husbands, I know it's easy and kind of funny to live in that role. And you don't, aren't responsible for very much. You're not going to ask, be asked to, to clean up or make dinner because uh, you don't know how. Um, all right. We don't get to be in that role. As much as it's, it's easy and comfortable in that role, that's not the role that we have. And sometimes we even like play it up and think it's fun. Uh, don't get to do that. Now, wives, wives, if your husband is called to lead, that's a, leading is a hard task. And it's usually underappreciated and undervalued and just creates, stirs up bitterness and resentment and, and complaining. All right, wives, help your husbands to be good leaders by, by joyfully submitting and encouraging and, and welcoming him to, to step up. Otherwise, you'll discourage him before he ever starts. All right. We all fail at this. We, we do not love as we are called to love. We do not submit as we're called to submit. That's the reality of, of living under the, the perfection of Jesus and saying that in any way we're called to reflect him. That's, that's a crazy calling. I recognize that. And I recognize that you guys have all been locked inside with your spouses for 10 weeks straight, and your marriages are probably not in the best shape right now. I get that. Uh, what I don't want to happen is that you now go home and, like, duke it out because you don't love enough and you don't respect enough. All right, please don't do that. Please, please, please don't do that. Do not go ambush each other on the, on the car ride home. All right, if you're going to do anything, you're allowed to do one thing. You're allowed to confess to your spouse your failure to do your role perfectly. All right, that's what you're allowed to do. If this whole time you're thinking about the failures of your spouse, uh, you missed the point. You missed the point entirely. Now, thankfully, we live under Jesus and we live with an abundance of grace. Let's give that to each other. Let's confess our sins and, and move forward. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right. All right. This takes us to uh, our, second, our second relationship here, which is between children and parents. All right. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke, provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. All right, children, you don't often get a passage that addresses you guys particularly, but children, listen up. All right. What are you called to do in this passage? Obey your parents. Obey your parents. Listen to them. Obey them. Now, why? Not so you don't get in trouble. All right. What's the point of all of this? Why do we do anything what does it say? It says, because it pleases the Lord, it pleases Jesus. That Jesus, who, who gave his life for you, who died for you, who chose you above all, who delights in you, how can you love him and please him? You can obey your parents. 
It's weirdly simple, but that is what God longs for you to do. And how do you express your thankfulness and love to, your parent, uh, to Jesus Christ himself is to obey. All right. Why do you obey your parents? Pleases the Lord. Pleases Jesus. Yeah, go tell him, Jeff. Come on. <laughs> Whisper in his ear. All right. Uh, now, teenagers, teenagers, you are still in this camp, but you have an increased responsibility. So kids might not understand the heart of their parents, what they're trying to get out. Teenagers, now that you've entered this level, you are called not just to obey your parents, but to understand why your parents are asking you to obey in the way that they are. All right. Whenever, whenever you think that you should be allowed to do so-and-so, and your parents said no, that should be a red flag to you. All right, not a red flag that you have terrible parents, or your parents are mean, or your parents are the worst. The red flag should go up, and it should say, I might be an idiot, all right? That's what it should say. Well, I, I might not be able to make my own decisions, and my heart might be dumb and not able to hear the, the word of God, and I might actually need more wisdom from my parents than I think I do. And I haven't arrived, I am not as mature as I should be, and I need to figure out, why do my parents have this commandment for me, and why don't I think it's good? All right, that's, where, that's where the call of, of maturing, is that you adopt the, the hearts of your parents, not just their words. All right, does that make sense? Yes. Now, only Jonathan nodded. <laughs> This guy, he didn't nod. All right. Um, all right, now, there's this. So that, that's what kids, what, that's what you're called to. Now, parents, fathers, do not provoke, provoke your children lest they become discouraged. All right, we're addressing fathers because fathers are ultimately responsible for these things, not because mothers aren't really uh, important in raising their kids. Um, all right, fathers, do not provoke your children. All right, the reality we're dealing with is that parents, we can make it easier or harder for our children to obey. And that we can provoke our kids into disobedience and into resentment and bitterness towards our leadership. And that's holistically true of the Christian, just reality of, of life, is that authorities can provoke those they have authority over and they'll rebel. Now, parents, uh, unjust parenting will create rebellion. If there's no fairness, if there's no consequences for injustice done within the family, if there's no consequences and just disregard, then the message is that, like, you know what? Parents aren't, don't really care about you. They care about themselves. And you're going to instill that, that kind of basic message in your kids, and they're going to rebel. Because in some sense, they've been taught to. All right, if we teach our kids that, uh, that the rules are inconsistent, or that there's favoritism, or that these things are just kind of whenever you choose to, then the rules apply. We're going to teach our kids to, to treat rules like that. And it's not about the heart of the Lord. It's just about whatever's convenient in the moment. And it's going to create rebellion. Finally, 
parents, if we have unreal standards, like un crazy standards for our kids, and every time that they, they kind of do well, we push the bar up a little bit higher and a little bit higher, if we become legalists and just discourage our children, all right, they're going to stop trying to please us. They're going to realize it's impossible, and they're going to stop trying to please their ultimate father because it's going to seem impossible. Once again, we're called to, to woo them to obedience because they know that ultimately, in spite of all of their, their misgivings and their selfish desires, they know that we love them and that we'll die for them and that we're sacrificing for them, that we're doing for what's in their best interest. Amen? Amen. Now, as parents, as we, as we fail at this, ask for forgiveness from your kids. That's not weakness, that's strength, that's the reality, that's teaching them the gospel. Ask for forgiveness from your kids when you fail. All right, last one, last one. Bond servants and masters. All right, uh, bond servants is generous. Uh, I'm going to say slaves, slaves and masters. All right, we have to recognize something here. Paul is addressing Colossian Roman society, and the reality of that society was they were masters and they were slaves. And as much as I long for Paul to have said, masters, release all your slaves, and slaves, uh, you shouldn't be in slavery anyway, so you have no, no responsibilities here. He doesn't say that. Instead, what does he do? He takes this institution, and he says, right here and right now, how can you glorify the name of Jesus? Not later, not as soon as the institution changes, but how can you do it right here and right now? Now, I, I, I've tried to justify uh, why Paul didn't say for this institution just be, be cut off at the source. And, uh, usually we say things like, well, it wasn't that bad. That, that slavery then was different. It was different. It was different than American slavery. It was not racial. Uh, it was not as humiliating and as oppressive. Uh, you, could, you could have gainful employment and work off and emancipate yourself eventually. But, all right, it was still an awful, evil institution. And it was unjust and it was oppressive. And it was real ownership of people, and they were legally allowed to abuse and mistreat slaves, and they often did. All right, that's the reality. And shockingly, Paul does not say, first, down with the institution, he says to slaves, okay, how can you glorify Jesus Christ? How can you proclaim the gospel even then? even in the midst of that. Verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. All right. 
So instead of saying, you know what, this is, this is awful, and you know, how about you just do kind of half-baked obedience? No, what, is, what does he say? Paul says, you know what, go full force in with total obedience. And not just pretending, no, like, from the heart, obey. And you know what you will proclaim to that master? You will show him that he is not the master. You will show him that, you know, you have, gone, you have gone far above any obedience that would be expected of just him. And that master is going to know that you have a master who is in heaven and who deserves far more than, than that earthly master deserves. And that master will realize that you are not serving him, you are actually serving uh, the Lord Jesus sitting on his throne who rules over all. And in that, that slave will have proclaimed the gospel to the master, even if he is oppressive and evil. He will show that he is actually not in control, that Jesus is in control. Now, that's, that's the opposite. That's like totally blows out what I would assume ought to be said, but... No. The slave in his slavery can proclaim the gospel in a way that is unique to, to his role and can uniquely speak to the master. And we give this comfort that, you know what, one day, one day when, when that slave gets to heaven, who will be the master then? Jesus. Jesus will be the master and Jesus will will be just, and he will be right, and he will right every wrong, and every mistreatment will be, will be made right. And all the work that you did for Jesus will be rewarded. And for that master, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. That that slave is entrusting him to the justice of God. And that this evil, oppressive master will come under the true master and will get what is right. Finally, what's the, what's the final word for masters themselves? Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That if you have a master who is just and who is fair, then you ought to be a master who is just and who is fair, who reflects the nature of the master that you are under. All right, just some, some notes on this. Notice, there's, there's not this clear Jesus parallel here. It's not saying, oh, slaves, submit to your master uh, because your master is, is how, kind of this place of Jesus. It doesn't do that. It says actually look beyond them to the true master. And that's where he's not saying, like he did in marriage, that there's this beautiful parallel. He's not saying this is fitting in the Lord. He's saying this is the reality of how we can proclaim the gospel right here now. And that's where I want to remind you that the call to glorify Jesus does not wait until your situation changes or until final justice comes. No, like, Right here and right now, you are called to glorify the name of Jesus in whatever place you were at. 
And it might not be in a way that feels just and feels right. And you might have to entrust yourself to the righteousness and justice of your, your Savior, Jesus Christ on the throne. But you're called to glorify Him. And you're called to proclaim the gospel. Now, that's a really hard reality. And as a, a child under my father, I, I don't like that. But we submit to it and we, we understand that it pleases him. Now, the other thing I want to make sure we realize is that, no, Paul did not overthrow the system. He did not overthrow the slavery system. But what did he do? His theology put in place all of the building blocks that this institution would come crumbling down. Colossians 3.11. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That ultimately, all those who are in Christ stand in Christ and are seen in Christ and any basis for, for judging between the, the slave and the free, the, the Jew and the Greek, it totally starts to dissolve in Christ. And the things that back up this oppression and this abuse, uh, they start to fall away. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That as we actually see each other as those who are in Jesus, that suddenly these, these power struggles and the, the competition, and we start to see, okay, no, we are all in Christ. We are one in Christ, and we are going to glorify Christ together. That's how abuse and oppression and, and mistreatment starts to, to collapse and fall down. All right, so what does this mean for us? All right, if you have power, you are to use that power to love and sacrifice, to put the gospel of Jesus on display. If you don't have power, you submit yourself to Jesus Christ and put the gospel of Jesus on display. that ultimately it's all about Jesus and his gospel and proclaiming his name and representing that gospel in whatever role we have, however we can, with whatever power or weakness we bring to the table, we can all glorify Jesus together. Amen? Questions? Donna's whispering questions. You gotta ask the question, Donna. Come on. I, I would be publicly shamed. Would you? Oh, come on. I don't think so. Maybe. 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 The young twenty-somethings. Uh, yeah, they're probably one step above teenager. They can go to your parents for wisdom, not because you have to, but because you get to. I would say. Is that good, Donna? All right, go hold that above of his head later. All right, good. All right.
Other questions? Wendy. Right. 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 Now, uh, yeah, as to the, so the, yeah, should I repeat the question? Would that be helpful? Um, first, first, how is, how, is, how is it that kind of the church historically has failed in some sense to, to fight some of these things and racial injustice and those sorts of things? And then how does the church respond? Um, I'd say first, the, the depth of sin goes really deep. And I think because Paul speaks to the situation as it is, you can manipulate that and say, well, maybe that's the situation that should be. And I'd say that's a, that's a failure in, in interpretation. That's not a strong interpretation of what this means. Um, beyond that, what should, what should the church do? I would say we should use some of these principles. That those in power should execute that power justly and fairly. And that those who, uh, who are harsh with those who are under their leadership, um, that that shouldn't be expect, uh, accepted. I would say that those who have power ought to use that power to love and to sacrifice for those who don't. Um, I think one other, one other thing, um, in terms of why did the church fail at this, I think holistically we neglect the prophets who are kind of the, the bulwarks of, of justice and, and societal change. We don't often like those books because they're hard and they're scary and they're not very preachable. Uh, the, my men's group wanted to read one of them, and I was like, no, it's boring, and it's going to be too hard, and you're not going to know who the Ammonites are. And, uh, but I think some of those principles are in those books, and those are holistically neglected books. That's, that's touching on it. I'm sure there's a ton more to say, Wendy, and I'd like to say more in the future. Other questions? Yeah, Mike. I don't have a question, but I have a comment to add to that issue. Okay. Uh, sadly, in the history of the PCA, there has been some problems of racism that General Assembly dealt with. Right. And our presbytery has 
Presbytery meeting in May, before all of this racial warm-up happened, was postponed until July. And that committee is the main thing on the docket. And I think that's the sovereignty of God. That's going to be very, very timely, hmm. given the circumstances. So I think that we all should pay attention to how that committee goes and what kind of statement right. they come up with to deal with this issue. Hmm. Because uh, you know, that's the Presbytery who's going to be in. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks, you, Wendy. And that's where, like, yeah, the, the PCA as a whole has so many resources, and we want to put those resources in your hands so that you feel like you're equipped to, to address these issues. Plus, I think and the general that's statement that was developed a few years ago is online. I think you can find it somewhere. If you look up PCA General Assembly, you might be able to find it. All right. Any other questions? All right. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that we stand in Jesus and not according to any law. And Father, um, we are a sinful people and we often use whatever power we can grasp at um, for our own gain. And so Father, we ask that you would make us captivated with the gospel of Jesus, that we would long to, to take whatever role we have and proclaim him and put him first. Father, would you kill the, the selfishness of our hearts? And Father, would you forgive us for the ways that we use power to subjugate and to, to oppress? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we stand in grace. We thank you that you have wooed us to yourself and not, not demanded our submission, but have asked for it and given us great joy in, in, in submitting. Father, would you continue to work these things out in our hearts and in our lives, in our families, that Jesus Christ may be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.